This week's episode of Screen Talk is brought to you by Vimeo. Vimeo has a bunch of amazing indie films you can watch on demand. I've recommended my favorites that you can check out at vimeo.com slash IndieWire. If you're a filmmaker and want to sell your movie or series on Vimeo on demand, all you need is a pro account. You can set your own price, create promo codes, add bonus features, and there's that embeddable HD player with a purchase button, which means people can buy and watch your film anywhere on the web. Vimeo only takes 10%, which is really the best in the business. Go to vimeo.com slash start selling and use the promo code ERIC20 for 20% off Vimeo Pro. This week, I'm going to recommend a movie available worldwide on Vimeo and out today called The Russian Woodpecker, which won the Sundance World Cinema Documentary Grand Jury Prize for a good reason. It's about a Ukrainian victim of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster who explores the roots of that disaster while also dealing with the ousting of the country's president in 2014 and digging through all the conspiracies surrounding the Cold War. So it's funny, it's strange, it's ominous and educational all at once. I really can't say enough about how fascinating this movie is. Use the promo code ERIC20 and you'll get 20% off the Russian woodpecker. But for now, on with the show. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood. And Ann, we've got a lot of new movies opening this week, which are also movies we've been talking about for a while because they're vying for best picture. So it's kind of a interesting merging of different variables here that they're all kind of competing for seats at the box office, but also the award season just got much much more complicated because not only are these movies playing at festivals, but these are movies that are, are open for audiences of all sorts to kind of make up their own minds. So we've got this really interesting well, it's trifecta. Tell the story. Yeah, it's a, it's a trifecta. Yeah. We have Room, no, Bridge of Spies, and, and Beast of No Nation. But in terms of telling the story, I mean, well, let's get into that. Well, Room is very interesting because that's sort of, um, you know, that's not a movie that was an obvious I mean, some of us insiders may have been aware of it, but um, it wasn't until it played the festivals that it was established and put on the map. And now it's going to have to prove its bona fides at the audience at the at the box office. But it seems to play well for audiences, judging from the fact that it won the audience award in Toronto and and other festivals too. So I think I think Room is going all the way. I and actually it's got believe a, that it, it it is, and it's got a tearjerker element which you can't discount. I mean, I went to... Uh, well, it's got a lot of things. I had this woman, Emma Donahue, who wrote the original novel at my class, uh, the sneak previews last night, and it was very interesting uh, talking to her because you re- I realized how much she... It, it's a little bit like Suzanne Collins and Hunger Games, if you want to, or, or, or J.K. Rowling and, and um, Harry Potter. It's, it's one of these situations where the writer retained a great deal of control and ended up developing the project with Lenny Abrahamson, who approached her very enthusiastically. I mean, the book was a huge hit all over the world, but it, it, I, have, I have a great deal of respect for the quality of the movie, the originality of the movie, the degree to which it breaks a lot of rules that um, other studio conventional kinds of films would not have done. It, it managed to stay away from being that kind of Weinstein Co., you know, mainstream, uh, you know, narrated uh, movie. You can imagine yeah. the direction I, well, I think what you're that it could have gone. It doesn't pander in a way. And what it does is it, it takes the 
the process through which this book shows you a world entirely through a child's point of view and translates it cinematically from the the way that it's shot to the way that the narration is sort of threaded throughout from his perspective. And that's very effective. It was interesting, last night I went up to Westchester to a film club to be part of a Q&A discussion about the movie. And this, this, these were a bunch of, you know, mostly older white audiences that kind of majority demo for for moviegoers in this country and at least for these kinds of movies and uh many many women typical there. art house you're yeah, saying typical senior, art house exactly. senior art house it leans towards the senior crowd and uh and many of the women had had actually read the book uh, in my class too it, it, was, it was that popular more than had yeah. read the martian by which, the way which well yeah i mean it, it totally different kind of sensibility but it, i also noticed that Whereas I thought, you know, when I read the book in advance, it, it spoiled certain things for me. A lot of these people were thrilled with the way that it, it did service to the book, and uh, it did make them cry, and they were very impressed with the performances. There were just many different variables here that seemed to click for people. And, I think it's uh, going to do great. I think it plays great, and I think that the actors are shoe-ins, you know, Brie, Brie Larson at least, in Best Actress, and maybe Jacob Tremblay, who's getting a great response as well, as opposed to uh, Abraham Atta, the the young boy in um, Beasts of No Nation, who's getting raves as well. But I just don't feel the same surge of support behind Beasts of No Nation. Well, it's a much more difficult role. I mean, outside of other variables, just starting with the kid, I mean, it's it's an incredibly... They're both difficult, I would say. Both oh yeah. Oh yeah. But I mean, what the what the kid? Well, we're asked to identify with a kid, uh, yeah. an the African kid, rooms, kid who's well, who's killing people. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's the killing variable, I think, which which may be sort of an issue, and also it's it's a much more internalized performance. The kid in room is very energetic and chatty, very entertaining. And, yeah, charming yeah. and accessible. Yeah. yeah. So no, that, and and finally, the the movie uh, room. We, we, the great thing about it, we had shown uh, James White, which was a bit tough <laughs> for this room. Watching and, watching and Cynthia it's a Nixon very die good for movie ninety minutes. Yeah, great uh, performances from Christopher Abbott and and Cynthia Nixon, but pretty grim. And and uh, you know you're you're basically dealing with a mother dying and and her her distraught. You know messed up son um but this is much more uh uplifting in its own way um in a good way uh room and right well whereas beasts why, of no nation yeah. is taking people to a place where they may not want to go right, much exactly. like 12 years a slave did right well on the other hand 12 years a slave latched on to a much more familiar historical reference point whereas beasts of no nation takes place in an unnamed african nation it's more abstract in that sense, and That's it's unrelenting. True. Yes, but it's beautiful. It's quite beautiful. I had a conversation. I went to the uh, after party at the Chateau Marmont, and there were plenty of debates about the movie going on, and, and uh, they had a good turnout. I mean, people were interested in seeing it, or, or else they were interested in going to a party at the Chateau Marmont, which is always a popular uh, party venue. Uh, but, Oscar season. <laughs> exactly. At any rate, I uh, one of the arguments had to do with how beautiful the movie was, which to me was a plus. And it, it also struck me that if, if you're taking people into a horrible experience, 
you know, as I mean, Steve McQueen made Twelve Years a Slave right. very beautiful too. So the question it's, is: is it is it is it okay? Violence or, yeah, or that that yeah. kind of situation. I mean, this came up with the other Beasts movie, Beasts of the Southern Wild, where you had a bunch of white guys showing impoverished black people in, in New Orleans. I mean, the question is: does that context distract from what the movie actually is, and would it not have that problem if it looked? terrible i mean it's it's sort of well beasts of the southern wild had its own beauty but it was also a wild and scruffy beauty whereas i would say beasts of no nation and 12 years of slave are very beautiful elegant glossy movies and 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 they're aestheticizing uh this horrifying universe and steve mcqueen talked about that quite a bit it was intentional right. on his part. and there is an element of of lyricism to sad and, and terrible and tragic things too i mean i i think that's what's sort of effective about the movie on some level is is that you are immersed in the paradoxes of this world partly because you're watching somebody come of age and at first he's enthralled by this process he becomes the killer and so you're brought into that subjectivity much in the way that you're brought into the child's uh, experience in room. So in that sense, they, they do. They're work very in interesting mode. parallels. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I think it's pretty clear. Um, no, but here's the here's what's so fascinating about Beasts um, of No Nation is that yes, it's going into theaters in uh, landmark cinemas around the country and uh, to be qualified for the Oscar and to get some kind of you know branding. Um, with moviegoers and people, but uh, and critics and so on, but but um, it, it could be accessible to 65 million people, you know, on Netflix. Well, we won't know how many of them it. click play. This because... will be this will be an unknown. But uh, that and how many Oscar voters on a on a positive note would would see it because it's on Netflix and go for it and maybe check it out or or not you know it's a, it's an interesting question and it'll be very hard to quantify the impact of the Netflix availability this weekend <laughs> impossible but also it's all you know to the extent that it takes away from the uh, theatrical it, it it may look like a loser in theaters it may not have good numbers at the box office on Sunday which when can we hurt it as well it contained it yep I'm not seeing a huge presence for Beast. I'm not seeing giant billboards all over the place or, or, or really no, feeling me the heat. No, me neither. It's just not there in the way that you would want it to be there for a movie like this. And uh, I, No, I mean, you I, wouldn't I, ordinarily have that for a small theatrical opening um, um or but they spend it they spend it on their docks when they're qualifying the question is pop- is this a small theatrical opening because it's sort of something different given the it's a hybrid it's a complete experiment it's never been done like this before well it's it's, it's certainly a good experiment in the sense that it should create some further conversations about whether or not it worked it's just a question of can we see that it worked or not in the weeks and months to come? What should that people is be the looking question. for? That is the question. And, it's uh, because they want Oscar uh, uh, qualify, qualification that they're doing this weird thing. I mean, I, I, the usual Netflix MO would be to go out and, and show it in, in, on Netflix. Just go for it. This is unusual for them. And I also wonder what else is showing up on Netflix this week. I mean, I don't know about your setup, but when I open mine, 
even if they decide to put something front and center on my screen, it's very easy to kind of scroll over to the other thing that doesn't ask as much of you. I mean, how much are people going to want to That's a good question. Under the Kara Fukunaga does have some cachet. And I think Idris Elba does too. By the way, as far as the Oscar race is concerned, my guess is that Idris Elba has the strongest suit. Well, everybody loves him. And I think I think that could happen in supporting. Um, we'll that's see. a tough field. You got all you got the spotlight no, guys. You I got know. Seth Rogen. You got Jason. I don't Sagel. think Seth Rogen is in there. No shot at all, huh? Well, that's a strong movie. That's a strong contender. Um, is if I were, if, I, I just don't. I don't think that particular performance as as good as Seth Rogen is. He's very good as was that. That's great. I don't. I don't. I. I don't. How do I explain this? It's an instinct. It's just a. If all the critics continue to say that he should be in the running, and if 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 the movie's popular enough, maybe he gets in. That's very idealistic of you. You're suppressing your your instincts. To say I just don't see it in the. Perf- I mean, they have. There's certain. There are ways that performances m- impress people with with you know. The big narrative becomes drama, a big showy. Right. Um, uh, you know, the, the, he doesn't have that moment, that real showy moment. Right. So I don't think third- standing. I don't think standing across the. The, you know, calling him an asshole or whatever <laughs> in the theaters is enough. I, I guess the most impressive thing about that performance is that it's Seth Rogen because it, it it's a very nuanced turn for him, and it doesn't he doesn't even quite look like Seth Rogen when he first walks through that door. You kind of have to blink once and get used to it. So there's something going on there, but but I would agree. I mean, it's not quite as transformative, and it's not quite the major talking point as some of the other. Just the supporting roles we're talking about, although there is one coming out in theaters this week in a different, in a different mode from Idris Elba and Beasts of No Nation, which is Mark Rylance in Spielberg's Bridge of Spies. I think he has a very good chance, actually. And that, but it would also be because people really respect him. He's such a great theater actor. He was in Jerusalem. He was in Twelfth Night, uh, dressed as a woman. He, he's, he was in uh, Wolf Hall, which, which was not Emmy ratified you know he's he's incredibly uh great and so i think people are aware of him and he's great in the movie and it's all there's also a sense that even though he's he's liked he's not widely known and it maybe there's some assists that could happen in in that respect it's sort of like did did we miss this guy a while ago and now it's his time to kind of get that sort of recognition that's possible, although yeah, I don't get the sense he's doing a lot of promotion and glad-handing, which could could hurt him. And I, the thing about uh, Bridge of, of Spies, as I said before, is is I you know I lo- I really like the movie and I think it'll do okay and I, I think it's good Spielberg and good Tom Hanks. But if if you know as I was going through all my my uh, Oscar categories, I didn't necessarily see it you know coming through in 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 every in every one. It could make it into Best Picture because they have so much so many more slots, so much room as it were but it yeah. also it needs to be uh needs, needs to be, be a hit it needs to do well yeah. right it, but i can't imagine read. that you guys at the end of the year all you critics and your critics groups you know <laughs> the new york film with our critics, nefarious schemes to yes marginalize you're, you're not, the i don't think you're gonna all decide that that 
Steven Spielberg and, and Bridge of Spies were the best movie of the year. I just don't see it happening. Well, I don't, I don't either. I mean, these things go a lot of different ways just because of the nature of the voting process. And if there's a lot of division, stuff can happen. The critics groups, we're still a few weeks out from that, but it, there will probably be a lot of different results this year. I don't think... You guys are voting the first week of December. That's the New York Film Critics Circle. Yeah. yeah, we go first, and then there's just a slew of different ones. And given the way that this field is shaking down, my suspicion is that there will be many different winners. And this will not create as much consensus about the direction of award season as much as it may just further, you know, muddle things up and, and create more Well what confusing. would you say are the are the leading contenders? If you were guessing what the New York film critics are gonna do on that first week of December, where would you go with well, that? There's again a few things that we haven't seen and I think those question marks So the Revenant and um, Joy and the Hateful Eight are looming large. Yes, I think that if you if you consider the kind of the altruistic leanings of certain people and the the nature of movies that tend to generate critical support, I think those movies definitely. I mean, those filmmakers have track records with critics groups, and and uh, those movies have a lot of kind of curiosity surrounding them. There's also uh, things that haven't really been scrutinized too much. I mean, if you think about the movies that are going to play at AFI Fest in the coming weeks. There's there's a couple of studio movies there that... I don't think that Angelina Jolie is going to be in there by the sea. Well, Something tells me. It's, it's hard to say with that one, but there's also this Paramount movie, which nobody was really talking about before from Adam McKay, that... Uh, that doesn't look like an Oscar movie to me. It's a comedy. Well, so is American Hustle in, in that one... Uh, two years back, so there's all kinds of possibilities with these things. I mean, it, part of part of what happens with with critics groups is that if you have a split, something still wins unless there's a tie or something to that effect. But uh, it's really hard to get a sense here. I mean, I I would be curious to see how room fares. My sense is that it will have a harder time with critics groups in it may with academy members i, I, I agree with that i agree with that 100 percent. and i think that spotlight uh, and steve jobs i think are more likely to be and even beasts of no nation right are more likely to do well with critics groups when we narrow it down that that does seem to make more sense to me if you, if you think about it and son of saul well, Son of Saul is going to sweep foreign language categories left and right. There's no yep, question about it. it I'm will. curious to see how that campaign unfolds. Obviously, enough people need to see it, and there needs to be enough conversation surrounding it. It did play well, really well. Well, the critics could have so. an impact on that one. Yeah, and it pl- did play really well at New York Film Critics Circle. So, yeah, that that's one. But, but the funny thing about it is that we always have to remember to come back to Son of Saul. It's not at, at, at the center of our conversations the way that you would think a movie like this that would have that kind of traction would be by now. But they're going to be looking at their 10 best lists, and they're going to be really analyzing uh, what are their favorites of the year. Well, and I think that's when they'll realize you know, which movies are at the top of their lists. That's true, that's true. And, and they do It's a different have, way of uh, looking at things. Yeah, and Son of Saul will be released in... By Sony Classics in the same slot they gave a more in, in late December, 
which it's a good comparison well. and more made it to best picture and director right and so one foreign so it's, that's it's what they're aiming for yeah oh, absolutely so speaking of, of directors worth rooting for the Guillermo del Toro movie finally is coming out the embargo she broke weeks ago was finally lifted <laughs> and I finally saw it so we can actually have a two-sided conversation about it I agree with you it's a good movie that is not being marketed or released particularly well, and uh, I don't know who's going to go see it. But uh, I but think hybrid fun. movies are hard, and I think I think what happens um, is that people internalize what the rules are, what the conventions are, and every genre has its contem- contemporary interpretation or currency and this is an old-fashioned genre that he's bringing back the 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 gothic romance with an element of of horror with an element of of r rating and uh so it's aimed primarily at women so it's it's just a as he was saying in my interview with him uh which i enjoyed very much he was saying that everybody kept telling him it was a feathered fish and that's what that means you know a movie that doesn't quite fit and and people don't like that they get mad if if they're too challenged but i found it exhilarating is, i mean who else works in pastiche where they're stitching together genres that you may or may not be familiar with Quentin Tarantino, right? And people love him for resurrecting. He's such a good writer that he pulls it. Yes, he pulls it into this kind of. He just has such an instinct for incredibly dramatic confrontational dialogue that that you you, you do get pulled in. You can't resist. But I like Crimson Peak because one of the things it it, it doesn't ask as much of you in in the way that I think that, say, the Tarantino Rodriguez Grindhouse movies did, and that they were celebrating a, a kind of movie that you, you really need to be steeped in this heavy knowledge of in order to appreciate. And I found that what Crimson Peak does is it runs it through a different kind of filter. It, it feels more like an attempt to to not just pay homage to this genre, but to freshen it up, to make it more uh, almost modern in a way, but not but not cheap. I mean, it feels very rich. The visuals are amazing, but the, it's the gore is It's $55 million. Dollars. Yeah, and the and a lot there's of that a lot on for the, the actors and and the 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 way in which it climaxes. There's a, there's a great kind of showdown at the end. I mean, it just feels like there's something very modern about the storytelling, in spite of the fact that there's something antiquated about the genre and the look. And I agree with you he's completely. Smart. He's smart. I, I think sense. he's incredibly smart, and he gets great performances. That they're ha- everybody gets it. They're all having a great time. Um, I think it's sexy. I think it's scary. I think it's just stunningly beautiful. That's the thing. You know, I just can't. It's just jaw-dropping how gorgeous it is. But they should be promoting it as a horror movie because horror movies make money, don't they? No, 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 no. You don't want to mislead people because the movie isn't that scary. I thought it was pretty creepy. Jessica Chastain is terrifying. It's not scary. (laughs) She is so creepy. She should be in the awards conversation. I agree with you. From your lips to God's ears. I think production design, costume design, cinematography, all of that. It's not a masterpiece in there, but there are jump scares in there. Some of them annoyed me, actually, because I think jump scares are a little cheap. But it it is a movie designed to freak you out. And... uh, 
I think that would have been a better way of doing it than what they've been doing with these weird neon posters. I even got, when I went to the all-media screening the other day, a, a note from Guillermo del Toro that was handed out to journalists where he sort of explained what the gothic romance was. And I just feel like you don't need to do that. I mean, somebody can come to this movie on their own terms. They don't need that framework to appreciate it. And maybe on some level it... it Gives the, it gives them a reason to appreciate it, and then they can learn more about that afterwards. But certainly there's no need to educate the audience about the genre that you're resurrecting in order to make them go see it. That might scare them off, actually, the whole the whole concept. It doesn't well, they're sound. trying to educate the critics now in that right. situation. Well, we don't need educating. That, Come on. Well, not you, Eric, <laughs> but there are others who may need it. Please, please. <laughs> so all this talk of Tarantino, we should probably get into uh, his Facebook habit uh, since that popped Well, that was interesting. I mean, he, he got a lot of grief uh, from a lot of quarters for this interview that he gave to Brett Easton Ellis, of all people. Um <laughs> You know, this sort of sloppily edited, apparently, uh, interview. Um, and he, he, he was going off on a number of different things, but one of them was Selma. And he said something to the effect that it was like a, a TV movie. It should be up for the Emmy. And, um, you know, he got a lot of grief for that. And he wrote me. I woke up in the morning and he, there was this, you know, message on Facebook from him, from Q, um, and he basically wanted to set the record straight that he that he had never seen Selma, that some of Brett's words had been put into his mouth, and um, you know he he wasn't in a position to say whether it was a TV movie or not. And then he went on to give us examples of of TV movies that he did like that it could be compared to. <laughs> um, so that was you know that was sweet. You know I, I, I don't just know. think he, he got into more trouble for that too. Yeah. I mean. I know it's, there's some principles involved in ego and all that, but maybe he should have just gone to see Selma after that happened so he could say, I haven't seen it when I saw said that, but now I have and I can say he's this. He's in the me. editing room. He's in the editing room. and he's <laughs> Using on, Facebook, apparently. I think he's, well, he's resurfacing, you know, once in a while, but yeah, uh, yeah who knew? Who knew? <laughs> but I thought that was kind of fascinating. I mean, it, it was a good piece, and I liked the way that Easton, Brett Easton Ellis kind of goes between talking about Tarantino's films and then brings Tarantino's voice into that conversation about the cultural provocations of Tarantino's work and all that kind of stuff. But the Selma line in particular I thought was sort of surprising because it made me wonder if there were a lot of people who felt that way who didn't speak up about it last year and who might feel similarly about movies this year and, and just this general sense that during, especially during award season, there are a lot of people who are afraid to speak their minds publicly about. I don't know issues. about that. I mean, I would say I would say that that the um, the thing that Selma was always contending with um, was a, that it, a lot of people didn't talk about this. It was a very low budget movie. It was well produced and well directed and well written, and she did a good job. But it was not what the academy thinks of you know it wasn't lincoln you know it wasn't something that was on a grand scale um and they judge that that's what they mean on some level when they say tv movie what it means is that it's a straightforward well shot conventional biopic 
Well, and, are people going to level was. that against Spotlight this year? In that Not sense? Spotlight. That's a different kind of thing. They might level it against, and they did in Toronto, level it against Trumbo, which mm. I think which is, is a very well-written and directed and acted movie that should be, you know, a hit on the art house circuit. But that was sort of but, the death now. I, I mean, that's not Selma at least stayed in the conversation in a bigger way. Trumbo doesn't seem to have any kind of serious traction in the way that... I think when people see it, I mean, I, I'm curious to see how it's going to be reviewed. I think it's a piece of Hollywood history that everybody should see. And I found it sort of revelatory. I, I knew some of this Blacklist stuff, but... I didn't know the extent to which Hedda Hopper and John Wayne and and uh, were involved, and 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 I didn't know a lot of the details about Edward G. Robinson, who's actually very moving in the yeah. movie, played by Michael Stolberg. Yeah. Um, I I I think it's 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 a, and also sometimes when you have a TV star who's the head of you know the star of a movie, it's just like a reflexive kind of knee jerk reaction that means it's a tv movie i don't know it's mm. it's an interesting question it's, it's a question of budget on some level you well, know we'll it's a certain Tarantino kind of movie ha! ha if he watches any of his awards well he's been year. when he's this busy he's not looking at anything yeah but he's going to be doing so much talking in the next weeks and months so well, well i'm sure people will want to know what he thinks about the other competitors in various categories so, if he hasn't seen it, it makes him safer on some level. <laughs> you know what he'll say. Well, speaking of touching, touchy subjects, maybe the, the last thing we should address this week is this piece written by Jennifer Lawrence about unequal pay, which uh, was published in, in Lena Dunham's uh, website, and um, I thought was pretty amazing on, on some level. I mean, it had a casual tone. You could tell it was sort of her, her thing, but at the same time, it was challenging these assumptions about how women are perceived in the industry and, and how those assumptions lead to a lot of this dysfunction. It seemed like the right, right. thing to do. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think what she's basically saying is that if you're trained from in front not to be difficult not to be challenging not to be shrill not to be angry not to put up any kind of fuss that starts to make you into someone who would accept a, a salary at a lower level and not fight for a, a bigger salary and that it is her job now as a leading um, actress and one of the best paid actresses too you know it's her role now to to set the standard and stand up for the salaries that that she should get and any any number of other i think jessica chastain chimed in on this and you know merrill has been on the war path for a long time um and you've got a lot of people stepping up and and i think uh it's great that lena uh dunham gave her that that platform well part of the challenge is that nobody likes talking about salaries it's a sensitive subject matter and uh it like netflix data it's usually not public information so how are these people going to continue to challenge those standards when so much of this stuff is being kept out of the public oh the agencies know all the agents know everybody knows in hollywood it's not necessarily published in the media but um, Forbes gets their, their fingers on some of the data and publish it every year. Um, it's there. It's there to be found. Well, it doesn't hurt that Suffragette will have its own campaign picking up steam in the coming weeks, so maybe this subject matter will continue to be... Oh, we're going to continue to hear about it, for sure. 
So next week we'll regroup. We'll have a whole bunch of new stuff to talk about. The Gotham nominations will be out there, and who knows, maybe Tarantino will send you a few more screeds online. <laughs> Anything could happen. All right. Talk to you later, Eric. Bye-bye.